This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And when the guest chuckles at that intro, you know it's going to be a good episode. That's an ironclad rule of Good Faith Effort. And today, Good Faith Fam, uh, it's the return of the queen, baby. Uh, we have an amazing returning guest here. She's a longtime fan favorite. And hey, folks, look, um... We talk about the GFE bump around here. I mean, this podcast record speaks for itself. Van Lathan comes on Good Faith Effort. Boom, he wins an Oscar. Catherine Boyle comes on Good Faith Effort. Boom, she becomes a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Nellie Bowles comes on the podcast. Boom, they found the free press. Chris Herring comes on Good Faith Effort. Boom, his new book gets shouted out by President Obama. Like, at a certain point, it's just time to connect the dots, right? And our guest today is yet another example of the GFE bump at work. Yes, of course, she's a renowned essayist. Yes, she's one of the world's foremost experts on African-American women writers. Yes, she's a major collaborator of another legend in the field, Henry Louis Gates Jr. But I like to believe that when she was recently asked to become Dean of Humanities at the prestigious University of Utah, it wasn't because of any of those things. It was because of her prior appearance on Good Faith Effort. Guys, Hollis Robbins, at <laughs> Anecdotal on Twitter, is here. And we're going to talk <laughs> literature, the, the humanities, faith, and so much more. But first... Uh, let's set this bad boy up. Okay, so guys, we're about to start talking about the book of Leviticus around these parts. And the cool thing about Leviticus, and yes, this book is awesome, I will fight you on this. The cool thing about it is how much of it just seems bonkers if you grew up in the Greek philosophical tradition. Like if you grew up studying Aristotle or the Stoics, or even if the Romans were more your speed, like Cicero, then Leviticus just seems nutso. Why? Well, because as historian Chris Hayes points out in a wonderful book called What's Divine About Divine Law, the Greco-Roman tradition and the biblical tradition both agreed that law derives its force from being divine, from being sanctioned by God. But beyond that, the two intellectual traditions completely part ways, could not be more different. The Greeks and the Romans thought that divine law was essentially just reason or the laws of nature. So as Cicero put it, True law is right reason in agreement with nature. It's of universal application, unchanging, and everlasting. And this is my one of my favorite lines from Cicero, because I disagree with it so much. There'll not be different laws at Rome and at Athens, but one eternal and unchangeable law will be valid for all nations and all times. That's Cicero's definition of divine law. That's divine law for the Greco-Roman tradition. Then you open up the Bible, and you find that God's doing the exact opposite of what Cicero says. God treats seemingly contingent things like history or experience as a basis for lawmaking. God instructs the Israelites that something treated as permissible while they were wandering in the desert will later become prohibited once they reach the promised land, different laws for different times and places. And if you open up the book of Leviticus, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see all sorts of divine laws from dietary restrictions to purity regulations that have as their goal separating out the Israelites as a nation responsible for promoting holiness in a particular way, laws that no other peoples are responsible for fulfilling. This is all the stuff of Cicero's nightmares. So how do we explain this apparent chasm between Athens and Rome on the one hand and Jerusalem on the other? Now, look, it's impossible to do justice to this topic in like a short podcast monologue, but suffice it to say that the difference between the two traditions, at least in my view, lies in where they saw the hand of God. So the philosophers saw the hand of God in universality, in unchangeability, in, in all-conquering reason. 
The prophets, by contrast, the biblical tradition, saw God in particularity, in the messiness, the irreducibility of the human condition, in the mystery of human experience. As my teacher of blessed memory, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs put it, I love this line, what the Greeks were interested in knowing was truths and facts. What the Jews were interested in was relationships. And those are two very different spheres. Now, lately, word on the street, and let's be honest, word on the pages of like the New Yorker or the Atlantic and the New York Times, is that the Greeks have won. All the next generation cares about is truths and facts. No one's interested in the complexity of the human condition these days. That's why the humanities, we're told, are dying. But are they dying? And even if they were, how would we save them? But if not, why does everyone think that they are? And is the answer maybe that in some places they're dying, but in others they're flourishing? And if that's the case, what practical lessons can we learn from the places that they're flourishing? So to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most erudite and successful teachers of the humanities in the actual country, maybe the world, and someone who's actually doing this not just as an individual, but by shepherding an institution. She's the Dean of Humanities at the University of Utah and a world-renowned scholar at Anecdotal on Twitter. She's Hollis Robbins. Hollis, thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna, I can't even say hello until I stop laughing. Thank you so much for, for that introduction. And in fact, I think it is exactly right that that I picked this job or this job picked me because of my appearance on yes. Good Faith Effort. So thank you for that bump. I'm so glad to be here in this in this wonderful, religiously rich state. I don't think I have ever been in a place that is more just, you know, flourishing with re religious thought and feeling and analytically religious thought and feeling. It's a really cool place. I love it. So, okay, let's start there. Like, let's talk about it. I remember the first time I went to Utah, I was speaking at BYU for something. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Long Island. And I remember the first time that my wife and I were at the time, yeah, we had just gotten married. And for whatever reason, we were in South Carolina. We were like around Charleston, like the Sea Islands area. And I remember merging onto like a relatively crowded highway and merging on like the whole highway stopped to let us in. And my response as a Long Islander was like, all right, what's your game, chief? Like, what's what's happening here? Well, what do you want from me? And and I remember going to Utah for the first time and having that same feeling like everyone was nice, lovely, wonderful. Everyone looked like they had been chiseled out of marble and like sprinkled <laughs> with corn from the from the Midwest cornfields. And yet, once you get past all of that stuff, the next layer of all of that is a deep sense of cultural thickness of religiosity. And but I only saw it for like two or three days. What has that been like for you coming from the West Coast to the state of Utah and encountering the culture there? Well, it's it's been really interesting. So first of all, there is Utah nice, and it has been something that I've had to get used to because, I mean, I'm nice, but I'm not Utah nice. Right. I'm just like, I'm nice when I feel like being nice. I'm not nice all the time. And people are really nice, and that's wonderful. And there's also, because of the LDS church and because of its being the majority religion, but also having been a minority and a, have suffered uh, religious discrimination throughout their history, there's a sense of of uh, what I call philo-Semitism uh, here, that in some of my conversations, well, there's certainly a fair number of Jewish faculty and students here at the University of Utah, but having real, like, 
sort of explanation conversations on a regular basis where I can ask questions because, you know, the Book of Mormon is new to me. Some of the uh, ways of, of the religion are new to me, but some of the ways of my religion are new to faculty. And, you know, like nobody remembers the holidays out here. Let me just say, I have so <laughs> many things to do on the night of Passover. That, you know, I just have to, you know, the other day I went out into my office and explained what Hamantaschen was and why there was a guy with a triangle shaped hat. You know, you start with the basics. It's like, yeah, there's this government bureaucrat from like 2,500 years ago. We hated him. We still hate him. <laughs> and this is why we have triangle shaped cookies, right? right. It makes sense to us. And, right. and at Yom Kippur, you know, you I was sort of went down the list of sins that you have to apologize for that you didn't even do yet. And people love that, by the way. People love that. So it's been really fun. Amazing. So, okay, there's been this whole discourse. It was kicked off by a New Yorker article about kind of the decline of English majors. It really was focusing on Harvard. And I think there's kind of like this ingrained sense or this this kind of cultural inertia that says, as you know, as goes Harvard, so goes the rest of America. And what I found remarkable about that New Yorker article about the decline of the English major and sort of as a larger, you know, parable, as it were, about the decline of the humanities, I found myself reflecting on how little I related to so much of the article, not because I doubt that the humanities are declining in Harvard, but because what I realize is so little of that experience speaks to anything that I know. And I and I remember seeing on Twitter one of the few kind of voices of what I felt was not reason, but like just experiential sanity was you. So what has been your experience with the humanities as you've kind of uh, come to this position of leadership at the University of Utah? Well, partly, I mean, we're growing, we're thriving. So the College of Humanities has seven departments, and I'm always going to leave one off. It's like a child that I'm going to forget their name at the last. But I've got philosophy, history, English, world languages and cultures, uh, writing, communication, and linguistics. I think I got all seven there. And every single one of those departments is thriving, higher enrollment than ever. And partly it's because of the state and, again, the particular culture of Utah. Um, one thing about the LDS Church is that um, many people go on a mission around the country. So language programs in you know, from middle school and high school, there are people who have taken like Russian and Korean and Japanese and German and Portuguese so that by the time, you know, you do a couple of years mission and come to college, you already have a two-year competency in a language. And so continuing on language instruction and, you know, reading Garcia Marquez in Spanish or you have a humanities degree, you have a, you're taking these language courses and our language courses here are thriving. And frankly, I've never been at a university and I've been to many universities that have such a rich program in language study and literature. So that's, again, that wasn't even mentioned in this article. And then another aspect is, again, in some ways, a cultural issue uh, drawing from uh, LDS theology, of which I am so not an expert, but my understanding is there's a real embrace of science fiction. So Mormon sci-fi is a huge deal. And so classes in speculative fiction, interest in taking, you know, thinking galactically and sci-fi, which as you know, is a big deal for me. So much to talk about that later. 
<laughs> so much to talk about, right? And we just had Kim Stanley Robinson here, right? And he was talking about Ministry of the Future and the environment, but he was also talking about sci-fi and, and what does it mean to imagine a future, which is all of this is, is humanities, right? This is, I always say, you know, if a spaceship landed, right, on on a campus somewhere, which college would they go to first? Well, they'd go to humanities because they want to learn about humans. And so, you know, th those classes are filled. We just hired two faculty members in video game narrative. Now, you might think, okay, well, is that really humanities or is this sort of diluted humanities? <laughs> You've come to the right place, let me assure you. You've come to the right place. I mean, it's awesome, right? So I'm interviewing these faculty members, you know, and I'm watching The Last of Us on, on HBO, which was great, right? And all of these young scholars, you know, played the game and can talk about the difference between narrative structure and narrative theory when it plays out in a book or on TV or in a game. And what does it mean to have agency while you're playing a game? What does it mean to make choices? We have people in our philosophy department who teach video game ethics. Right. It, you know, and one of the cool things is, you know, all the studies that, you know, say, like, what is it going to do? Is it going to change you if you're chopping off people's heads and blasting people into eternity in video game? No, it isn't. But here's something interesting. If I walk in and I see you blasting somebody's heads off, I'm going to think differently about you. Isn't that interesting? That's so fascinating. Isn't that so fascinating? Wow. So again, we have philosophers, ethicists, linguists. We've got some people in our Russian section and our world languages and cultures department uh, looking at Russian video games. How are Russian video games different than other video games, right? So these are humanities questions and we're doing them right here at the University of Utah. So one thing that I guess immediately thought when I read that New Yorker piece, and it's long, by the way, but worth reading. One thing that I immediately thought was, all right, this sounds very simplistic, but I also think it's true. Is Harvard's problem not simply just one of secularism? Meaning, let me give sort of a, an analogy from the world, from the community that I come from. So in the community that I come from, the Orthodox Jewish community, and my alma mater is Yeshiva University. So you might look at Yeshiva University and see that, I don't know what their latest stats are. I would have to guess that their kind of humanities enrollments have either been declining or stayed stagnant. It's, it's not like a super popular thing, Yeshiva University. That would mask, however, the enormous humanities achievement that Yeshiva University has had, which is sort of Yeshiva's version of the humanities is Torah study. Yep. So I would often take friends out from who are, you know, either members of other faiths or clergy from other faiths, and they would inevitably kind of ask about yeshiva, et cetera. And I would kind of describe the study hall, you know, which in Hebrew is called the Beit Midrash. Like the Beit Midrash, it's like a two-story Beit Midrash. It's like packed till like, you know, 11 o'clock at night with students just studying the most arcane elements of the human experience and its relationship to the divine, whether it's like, what happens if an ox gores your neighbor while it's running down the street? Saw a video on Twitter about this yesterday, but it doesn't happen often. <laughs> um, or like, what happens if you shoot an arrow that's on fire from one field into another field? Like, who's responsible for the damage? Things like that. Two legends about, you know, so the Talmudic take on the legend of Narcissus. So you have two-story building packed with people doing this till 11 at night. And the inevitable question I get is, well, how do you, I mean, they must all be like aspiring clergy people, right? And the answer is, 
like almost none of them. These are people who are planning to become accountants, lawyers, doctors, whatever it is. They're doing this because they believe, and I believe, that there is a divine imperative to understand our relationship with God, our place in the world, and the role that and the responsibilities that humans have within it. And so I can easily imagine, you know, humanities or humanities type studies absolutely flourishing. I just don't see them flourishing at Harvard because I'm not sure what their purpose is, right? Other than, you know, other than to check a couple boxes or, you know, critical thinking or whatever, right? But is that something that you experience at, in a place like University of Utah? I know not everyone there is religious, but, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in the air is the climate and the atmosphere of asking fundamental questions of why we're here. And I and I think that's actually right. And I, I think, you know, even though there are people who are, you know, certainly LDS or not or lapsed or there's a huge Catholic population here, too, because it's a refugee city, because, again, this is maybe a a red state, but it's a state that very much is global and welcomes uh, individuals from around the world here. And I just met this morning with a faculty member who's going to be heading up our Middle East Center, who just got back from Saudi Arabia, who cares, you know, we, we've we got Islamic studies, we've got, you know, our, our Arabic language program here. It's a place that's very welcoming of the world. Again, things aren't, you know, there, no religion is perfect, even Judaism. Uh, but, the, you know, the there's a sense of asking those big questions. And there's a sense of asking ethical questions. And one of the things that I, again, the pleasures of getting to know um, the college here and the faculty here is we have some extraordinary ethicists and uh, philosophy faculty that is, I would say, primarily interested in questions of ethics, practical ethics, not just video games, but medical ethics, end-of-life ethics, science ethics. What do you do with, you know, dinosaur bone DNA? What are the ethics uh, about studying things like that? We have faculty that are asking these really granular questions that are not abstract but have real-world application. And again, it's humanities, but it's humanities you know, very applied in a way, which I think is something that the New Yorker article didn't really get at. So I want to, you know, those who can't do talk about it, right? So I actually want to do some, <laughs> let's do, let's get into some humanities. I want to come right back to kind of sci-fi and, and fantasy, which is kind of my first level, though I've, I've gotten so into sci-fi lately. I want to talk about AI. Okay. So speaking of Utah, by the way, I'm a big fan of the Brandon Sanderson novels, the Cosmere novels. Right. I believe he's a BYU faculty member. And there's a really fascinating piece of, of storytelling in the Sanderson novels. And it relates to a sentient sword. It's called Nightblood. And it's, it's a highly, highly dangerous object. Why is it so dangerous? Because the sword has been granted sentience and then given the command, destroy evil. And this is a disaster because... As its creators, I mean, how, the creators are like, how could this be bad? Smash cut to the sword is an object. And how should an object that has just been given sentience five seconds ago understand what evil is? It has no frame of reference. It has no relational sense. It has no collective memory. Now, I thought about this recently in all the discourse around AI, and I realized the Sanderson parable kind of like easily feeds a doom and gloom scenario, right? Like, oh, AI will destroy us because it has no idea what it's doing and it has no humanistic faculties for figuring it out. But I I actually kind of feel that there's an equally plausible 
exciting scenario, but I'm actually curious what you think. What's the play here with AI? Well, it's, it's, there's two things. So the first text I draw on would be Tales of Hoffman and, and notions of the uncanny, right? What is it when the inanimate speaks or acts or has agency? You wonder about it. Is it animate? You know, is it, does it have life? Is it not? And so Tales of Hoffman have, has, has a great deal of, of attention to that. If you think about the um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, I believe, is one of those, uh, is a story from that, from that area. And I also think of Henri Bergson, the great philosopher, his book on laughter, which talks about how when the in- inanimate does something wrong or when language is a little bit off or the kind of humor that we get from autocorrect when it just says something absolutely ridiculous, we laugh, Right. So that there are ways that we have a history of laughing at, being frightened by, feeling uncanny about um, the inanimate. And I say all this to say that's where my mind went and it seems like where your mind went. And yet then I'm watching Twitter and I'm watching people in the tech world discuss it, having no grounding in that history of humans and human relationships with inanimate objects or magic, right? And I think like, wait a second, you're having a different conversation than I am. This is in fact not new, right? I mean, there are aspects to AI that are new, but it's not new, right? This is the stuff of fairy tales. And as you say, this is the stuff of sci-fi. I think Ross Douthat pointed to, he pointed it out on Twitter. There was a column that can't remember who the co-author was, but it was Henry Kissinger was one of them and there's some other person who co-wrote this article, I want to say it was in the New York Times, on AI. And the argument was, this is sort of like a reversal of everything we understand about technological progress, because until now, technological progress has been about building things out step by step, understanding each step so that we can figure out the next one. Whereas this, we're building a black box and we're going to have to figure it out once the product is already finished. We're going to have to kind of deduce what we know about it. And Ross was... I think understandably dismissive of the argument, but to me, it kind of struck me that, well, Kissinger and his co-author are displaying this kind of like millennia old, maybe longer than that, human instinct that the first time you find something dangerous in the world, the first human instinct is actually to worship it. And that's where the ancient idolatries come from. And so what I think the the biblical intervention into that kind of thinking is, well, like, yeah, humanity has always been the only beings capable of moral thinking in a very dangerous world. Like if you read the book of Genesis, our responsibility from the very beginning has been to use our divine image bearing existences to exercise moral dominion over the world, right? To make sure it's a place of goodness and not injustice, right? And by the way, as far as Genesis is concerned, there's like, there's definitely existential risk to failing at this, but it's not from machines, it's from God, right? The world, God wipes out the world in a flood because we did a poor job at creating a world of justice, right? Well, and I think there's there's something about infinite knowledge, right? Which is which is the sort of discourse around the discourse of AI, right? And and about ChatGPT or GPT four or whatever. There's bigger training sets, bigger data, you know, more things. Everybody knows everything, and the and the idea, both the worry and the sort of excitement, is that you have this thing that knows everything. Right. And suddenly, again, we're in the realm of the almighty when we we all have already conceived of an entity that knows everything. Right. And we have 
you know, I think about uh, Borges, right, in the Library of Babel, like every book that is ever written. Oh, I want to get to Babel, too. That's great. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> and then there's this great sci-fi book, a short story by Stephen Peck, A Short Stay in Hell, which I, I recommend very, very highly. It's a it's a really wonderful book, Stephen Peck. And it, again, Mormon sci-fi about a guy that finds himself in hell and hell is the library of Babel. Right. He has to find the book of his life that was written of his life in an infinite number of books. And I think the Borges and God need to be in the conversation of AI. And there's a sense, as you know, I tweet about it every now and again, I'm obsessed with sort of Calvinist theology about the idea that our way of being on the earth should always be to respect the Almighty, right? Should always be to say, to humble oneself, to say, I am not the person that knows. This entity is the person I know. And when you talked about where is the hand of God, right? And uh, I tell people, especially our ethicists here. Wow. I'd never thought of this of like, Kissinger is like a secular Calvinist. That's so fascinating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, and, and again, because. That's awesome. It's such, like a, it's such an American impulse, right? Like it's such like a deeply American, like the 18th and 19th century impulse, right? Right. Except, right, if you think about today's trolley problems, when you say, you know, you've got the five children playing and the one drunk guy, and are you going to pull the switch? And what are you going to do? And I say, look, through most of American history, the right answer is I do nothing because it's up to God. And people are like, no way, you can't do nothing. And I'm like, yes, that's I mean, I'm not saying I would do nothing, but that is the answer is to say it isn't up to me. And this is makes is so alien to kids these days. It's so crazy that you're saying that because growing up, like when we would discuss it in my institutions where I grew, like, I mean, even today, do nothing is the is the intuitive answer to me, right? That's so right. fascinating that you're saying that. Oh, kids will not do nothing. It's like you're a monster if you do nothing, <laughs> right? It's like, well, let's just think about this, right? Now, it's different if you're asked. Right. You don't do nothing if you're if somebody calls out to you. Right. Right. And there's there's whole to there's whole <laughs> whole tomes written on that anyway. But this is this then is the question of how does one approach A.I. as a religious person? Right. You know, do you back to your question of do you worship it? Do you feel like you own it? Is this the Tower of Babel? What is going on? Speaking of Babel. In the last couple of months, especially in the wake of the kind of FTX meltdown, effective altruism, which I think would have been understood like a year or two years ago as the most natural competitor successor to kind of like traditional religious asceticism, has taken a beating. What's your take on effective altruism in the wake of FTX? Well, even before, I have to say, I'm, I'm going to swim against the grain here. But, you know, again, as somebody who works deeply in the 19th century, you know, and, and knows my Calvin as well as my, my training is, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's playing God. I mean, it's actually playing God. I mean, people can be altruistic. I give away lots of money. I help lots of people. But I don't have it as that's not my religion, right? And as we know, isn't the ladder of mitzvah, the best thing that you do is anonymous and nobody knows who you're giving to and nobody knows who it's from. Right. Uh, I still think that there's something good about that. So, you know, to, to talk about how effective you are as an altruist, to me, 
I never bought into it. But it's interesting, you know, and again, going back to the question of humanities and going back to the question of ethics, you know, these two huge financial crises in the last six months, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, and Silicon Valley Bank, right, are both these crises that have a ton to do with ethics and have a ton to do with judgment and have a ton to do with human questions, right, of human failures and why nobody stepped in to to address these human failures uh, earlier. And I just think that that is, I mean, we talk about these banking crises all the time in a college of humanities, which again, I think is not an issue or is not a phenomenon that the New Yorker article even addressed. One thing that I've so admired about so much of your writing, and I want to get to one piece in particular, but in a lot of your scholarship, you look at these kind of traditional tales, at least that that by now are traditional tales, that are easily read as kind of relatively simple morality plays, whether it's The Emperor's New Clothes or whether it's Dracula or whether it's Uncle Tom's Cabin, whatever it is. And you will tease out an argument, a moral argument that it's making about morality's intersection with commerce or with technology. And it strikes me that in the case of FTX, I feel like the almost the cheap answer, meaning the opposite of what you're saying, the cheap answer is, well, if only they had read more Plato. And like, that might be true, right? Like if Sam Bangman-Fried had spent more time reading reading Aristotle and less time playing League of Legends, maybe this would have turned out differently. <laughs> but I, I think the problem is even deeper than that, which is that we kind of like segregate the humanities from the rest of human endeavor, or we make it the handmaiden of the rest of human endeavor. Like, the you know, the, the big pitch in like the, you know, the early aughts was you should study humanities because it gives you good critical thinking so that you can ace your Goldman Sachs exam, right? And <laughs> And I'm like, that's the opposite of what sh- how we should be thinking about this. Like you take, you study the humanities so that if you decide to go to Goldman Sachs and you ace your exam, you'll know how to be a good person at Goldman Sachs and use your talents for the better. Or maybe assess that maybe Goldman Sachs is not the right career for you and do something better with your time, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it needs things need to be integrated, right? And and I think that's exactly that's exactly the concern is is this idea that the humanities are are separate and are the thing you do when you're not doing your math, right? Or the things you're doing when you're not doing your physics. And and part of what we like in partnering with our video games and with our, the computer science folks in developing computer games is that our narrative theorists, our medieval scholars, because a lot of the video game uh, master students want to take classes in, you know, medieval France, war history and classes in Beowulf because they want to understand that. It's the the fact that they're interacting with each other, computer science folks who obviously love games and love narrative and love history and love all of those humanities things. We put them together in one classroom doing projects. And you know, they may go on to be bankers. They, you know, this may be just the fun, their fun undergraduate career, but your learning skills in coding, your learning skills in understanding the human condition, your understanding storytelling, right? And the thing is that Sam Bankman-Fried was so good at was telling a compelling story, right? And everybody wanted to believe this guy, 
I mean, that's what's so interesting is how much everybody really wanted to believe that there was like magic money that, you know, added up to more than the ledger said it added up to. Um, that's as old as, as any of our stories. Well, I guess, I mean, I feel like it's similar to AI in that, again, anytime we, the first human instinct when we encounter something mysterious, potentially terrible and dangerous and extraordinary is to worship it. Sure. And I think also, like, uh, I don't know if you follow Balaji on uh, on Twitter as well. And, you know, he came has this new book. Friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. The network state. Right. Which is on the one hand, you know, I don't I don't understand a lot of it. But the idea that you can create new platforms and new geographies to create community of like minded people who may be operating on multiple realms at once is fantastic to me, is is a human and a humanities concept. It is it is not strictly technical and banking and, and crypto and metaverse. It is a humanities endeavor that he is building. And so I totally applaud him for that. So why is the novel Dracula really a story about clocks? <laughs> well, if you think about it, okay, so the 19th century, I'm going to go back to, to the place <laughs> I know best, right? You've got all these trains suddenly rushing around, right? And every little town in the world had a different time zone, right? Because it's noon when the sun is over your sundial. And it's noon 20 miles away when it's over their sundial. But suddenly, when you get this new technology, trains, you've got to have standard timetables. Because otherwise, if you got one track and maybe some spurs, going back to our trolley problems here, right, then you're going to want to make sure they don't crash into each other and they're going to show up at the station at a time that everybody understands. So universal time based on Greenwich, England, Greenwich Mean Time was developed, it was invented very shortly after railway traffic became a thing. So that's the groundwork that Bram Stoker was writing Dracula in the, in the 1990s, um, was the implementation of time zones. The 18, 1890s, 18, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, the, be, the, be, the best century. Come on, we can't leave it out, right? 1890s, right. So the backdrop of creating these time zones plus the universal day, right, is you know the, that the day starts at midnight and not at noon. But there are parts of the world and Transylvania was one of them where, um, and, and I should say calendar is part of this too, like what day is it? So you've got the Gregorian calendar, you've got the Julian calendar. So Transylvania is a place where you had competing time zones, competing calendars, and even the non-adoption of the universal day. So nobody knows what time it is in Transylvania. And nobody knows what day it is, because if you're keeping two calendars, which are 11 days apart, somebody could say, well, I saw this guy die on April 1st. And the other one said, well, I could I saw him walking around on April 5th and they would both be right. Right. So that, in fact, legends of the undead emerged in Transylvania, which is hilarious. Right. Which and I hope I'm not like giving any spoilers to anybody <laughs> 
<laughs> who hasn't seen Dracula. It's a huge spoiler <laughs> alert for Dracula at the top of this podcast. But so, yeah, so so when you look at Stoker's notes when he's plotting Dracula and they're at the Philip the Rosenberg Museum in Philadelphia, you can see that he is plotting all of the uh, events that make up the novel with these two competing calendars and time zone differences in mind, such that when Dracula enters from Transylvania, he goes to London. I'm not giving anything away. He brings this fog of temporal uncertainty with him and that nobody knows what time it is anymore. And in that kind of place, you know, modern commerce can't function, right? There are no deadlines. There is no, you don't know where when things are due. You don't know when you're going to show up. Um, Things crash into one another. It's fantastic. Wow. And the effect that Dracula has on his victims is like, even for a year or two after they've encountered Dracula, they still can't tell time. They can't tell time. They're in a fog. They go out at night. You know, they, they just, they're all messed up because they can't live in modernity. And we don't think about modernity, right, as a matter, I mean, we should, uh, as a matter of what it is that we agree on. And even in this you know, crazy, messed up world, we mostly agree what time it is and what day it is. We're all writing the same numbers on our checks if there were <laughs> checks anymore, right? And, you know, this was the big concern about Y2K, you know, the the moving over from 1999 to the year 2000, which went perfectly well. We all agree on timestamps. And that, you know, you can think about that as, as sort of the basis of real modernity. Now, Again, spoiler alerts for a <laughs> over hundred year old novel. But we, you know, I think that kind of in the popular imagination, the way to deal with a vampire is you hold up a cross or you, you know, hang garlic on your house. And as far as the novel is concerned, that's what people were doing unsuccessfully. Like that wasn't a real solution to Dracula. It was a way to kind of keep keep vampires at bay. But the actual thing that vanquishes Dracula is science, right? It's Doctor Van Helsing. Well, it's science, but there's another through line through this novel, which is really interesting, which I haven't really written about, but it it kind of matters in the GPT era. Because one of the things you probably notice about ChatGPT is it speaks perfect English, right? Its grammar is excellent. It is absolutely excellent. Everybody in the novel Dracula who speaks with an accent or speaks irregular English or slang gets bitten and turned into a vampire so that there's an entire other subtext of regional linguistic difference that is punished by Dracula in a kind of weird way that's unlike the standardized time. But, you know, what vanquishes Dracula is science, standardization and standard English in a funny way, because, you know, even Van Helsing, who, you know, speaks with a, with an accent, you know, speaks perfect English, right, which is right. sort of which is sort of funny. Anyway, you know, when I think about what chat GPT is not good at and perhaps getting back to Babel in a way is it can't do slang. Right. And it, it can kind of get it if you, you know, write like say what or, you know, some sort of goofy thing or write a little Yiddish. Have you tried writing a little Yiddish in your prompts? I have like, not. <laughs> like say, hey, new. <laughs> you know, what, what would it get? <laughs> we should try that right now. Right. What would That's awesome. how would it respond? And and I think 
ultimately memes, slang, regional differences, dialect, like the same way that sort of Navajo code talkers mattered in World War II, they will matter for beating AI. Wow. So speaking of of clocks, okay, I'm fascinated by clocks, oddly enough. So already in the 14th century, right, so so many of the major cathedrals in Europe actually built major clock towers, right? Because clocks in the Middle Ages were understood as important religious imagery and that they represented like right in the heart of the town or the city order and meaning in the world. And a clock's mechanical complexity as it kind of sought to follow the laws of nature, time, day and night, other celestial phenomena, communicated to the populace of the Middle Ages a sense of divine order. Right. And the the Benedictines and the, the you know early monasteries You had to have the time because everybody had to be praying at exactly the same time so that God could hear you better. Right. And so time in that in that sense is kind of a and meeting deadlines, right, is kind of another expression of that sense of responsibility to the divine. Now, by the 17th century, clock imagery has been totally flipped on its head so that it becomes a symbol of like mechanical progress, the genius of man rather than the genius of God. So, for example, like Descartes in his discourse on method goes about comparing the human body to a clock. And the body's a machine, in other words, right? It's like the beast machine of Descartes. So to the extent that there's a soul, which Descartes actually did believe, it's radically separate from the body. So my question is, did these thinkers from Descartes to Bram Stoker, in the case of Dracula, did they get the clock wrong? Wrong is the wrong word. Not wrong per se, but have they kind of obscured from uh, from our eyes today the sense of like spiritual awe and theological majesty that a clock should induce, right? Or maybe today's equivalent of the clock, maybe rocket ships. Like is the secular aura of tech just like a failure of imagination on our part, on Bram Stoker's part? That is, that's a, I have not thought about it that way before, right? I have, so I don't think Stoker saw those medieval origins as anything but man's imposition, right? Mm. Because if you think about Shabbat, right? Shabbat is not by the clock, right? It's when the sun goes down. I mean, we all use a clock. Right. <laughs> what time's sundown? <laughs> we go on the web to ask what time is sundown, right? Right. But it's looking at, it's looking at the sun. It's looking at the sun, right? So even in this early, this is a Catholic. Are we separating out Catholic and Jewish <laughs> theology here? Because because this early divine clockness was Roman Catholicism, was not Judaism, right? The standardizing of the calendar, right, was was not was a whole separate theology, right? Ju- Judaism has it, but it's like very much understood and and articulated as like a concession, basically. Right, 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 and so. I do think that Stoker being Irish, you know, it was it was certainly the Catholic question that he was he was getting at here. It's interesting, though. I've got to go back and read it. Darn you. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny, though. If I can bring up, there's another there was another piece, a tablet magazine piece that I can't I can't remember when it came out called Where are the Jews? In higher ed, did you read that? It's in my queue, actually. I, I just saw it was like two. It was recent, like two weeks ago or something. Yeah, like that. When, right. but when you think about again, back to your earlier point about the humanities and secular institutions and non-secular institutions. So we're certainly a secular institution at the University of Utah, but in a very religiously rich community and state. 
you know, I definitely want to start recruiting more Jewish students out here. If the question is, where are they? This is a really good place for Jew Jewish students. But it was a kind of interesting question about the decline in that population in higher ed. So when you read it, tweet. Yeah. So speaking of, by the way, so how much is the is like the barrier to entry to the humanities not, not not even in a negative sense, maybe an, even in a positive one. How much is there kind of like a threshold issue of needing to have both an appetite and an aptitude for intertextuality and illusion, right? L like, like you don't need to understand the literary, like literary dependency to figure out mathematics or biology other than for like instrumental or technical reasons, right? Like other than for those reasons, like instrumental or technical, you don't need to know who Einstein was reading. But if you don't know that an early 20th century author was reading Ivanhoe or in a contemporary context, if you don't know that Kendrick Lamar was listening to Tupac, then you're going to miss out on so much that's fundamental to a, what makes a work great, right? Right. And actually, I, once again, I think you this is this is the perfect way to put it, which is this question of influence, which is, you know, if if I have one critique uh, of TikTok, for example, and, and I have many critiques of TikTok, even though we study it in the classroom and I don't think it should be banned and it's a complicated question. But my fundamental concern about... Is it spyware? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? My concern is that it doesn't really encourage questions of influence. Right. It is so presentist to use, you know, to use the, the word uh, that historians are thinking about. Right. It is so presentist. You never look at a TikTok and say, you know, who are the influences on that TikTok and who are their influences and how do we look at TikTok through the ages the way you might with Kendrick Lamar and Tupac. Right. The, that sort of long, longitudinal thinking is if there is any barrier to entry to the humanities, it is that you even understand what longitudinal thinking is, right? Who was reading Little Woman? What was Alcott reading? Like, if you can think about, you know, I started off by thinking about Hoffman, Tales of Hoffman, right? As certainly Borges knew, right? Do you know even who Borges is, right? Right, right. If you can't understand, or you know, and it might all go back to Ovid, right? This idea of turning things into other things, right? How do we understand longitudinally how human beings have been thinking and perceiving and conceiving of the universe? It, it helps to know these things before you walk into a humanities class. But if you haven't thought that way, I think that that's what blows your mind about the humanities is suddenly you are being asked to think longitudinally. Is it possible that one challenge that a student might encounter when they want to grapple with the humanities is that it's been stemified, not just in, in kind of like the instrumental rationalizations for it, like, oh, it's important for critical thinking, but in the sense that in the sciences, the only reason to go into those fields seriously, I, I, I don't mean this prescriptively, but but like descriptively in terms of how people think of it today is like, so you can come up with a new idea, you can create a startup, you can make money off of it, right? You can advance science, et cetera, progress studies, all of those things are important. In the humanities, if you're doing them correctly, then to say something genuinely new in the humanities is just far harder than it is in the sciences, right? Because, you know, just to take one example, like Kafka, right? If you want to say something new about Kafka, it's almost not enough to have read every single word Kafka wrote and understood it. You also have to have read 
Ovid. You also have to have read the, the Zohar. You also have to have read, you know, everybody that he was reading. And at a certain point, is is maybe one of the the opportunities for the humanities just giving a sense of permission to people to not have to say anything new about the humanities. Like the best reason to read Plato is not so you can add to the world's knowledge of Plato, but because Plato will help you figure out how to be a good person. <laughs> well, there's, I would say that that is the case for undergraduates. Right. Or even graduate students. You should know what Plato's cave is. You should know the Republic. But you should, there, there are ways also in thinking about Aristotle's poetics and and um, thinking about the the notion of artful deviation, right? So that we have, if you think about, again, back to AI, when you think about what Im text embeddings are, they take words that, words that are close to each other, you know, because they'll be found near each other and therefore AI will be most likely to use those words and like autocorrect, right? And Yet there's uh, an idea in poetics Aristotle calls artful deviation. When you say something unexpected, like Milton's blind mouths, right, which doesn't make any grammatical sense, but you know what he means by a phrase like blind mouths, right? That's what poetry... Or it's like listening to like Thelonious Monk music. He'll just play wrong notes on purpose, right? <laughs> exactly, right? And, and that kind of unexpectedness is what we're talking about now with large language models. So you're, you want to read your Aristotle, you want to read your Plato, but authors like George Eliot read the poetics every 10 years just to stay sharp, right? Because there's nothing that we know about language and how we use and process and think and apprehend and see what is new about language that doesn't that isn't rooted there in some ways. And so you know, to apply Aristotelian thinking to large language models, I can see a dissertation there. So you're not really saying something new about Aristotelian thought, but you're saying, okay, this is making it new in new ways. Okay. So as the, at least in, in my community, as the Passover holiday approaches in another community, it might be as the Easter holiday approaches <laughs> or as Ramadan approaches, whatever you're, you're observing out there, what's the best sci-fi recommendation that you have for our upcoming opportunities to do a lot of reading? Well, I just a couple of nights ago started Star Trek Picard, which I know started out in 2020. And I just was, I, you know, I was tweeting about this today about the Romulans. Uh, so, you know, it's a whole different timeline. It's a whole different group of people. But apparently the Romulans loathe synthetic humans and, and AI. So, you know, after spending a lifetime with the Romulans in various Star Trek universes, this is so interesting to me. So that is totally great. If you haven't seen The um, the Last of Us, did you watch that? Of course. I mean, the, the, what, I can't remember what they're called. Cor I keep cordyceps, right? The yeah, 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 yeah. Totally good. I just read this great, again, I'm going to go back to, to Mormon sci-fi, <laughs> um, The Infinite Future by a guy named Tim Wirtkus is kind of a weird Borgesian sci-fi, so I got to love that. And I also liked um, R.F. Quang's uh, Babel a lot. These things I do in audiobooks. So those are, those are my recommendations. And what about you? Do you have any good ones? Oh God, it's such it's such a good question. So I, it's an older book. I actually had had it as a recommendation from like years ago, but it's a book called The Last Samurai. It's by Helen DeWitt. 
Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. And it's it's such a weird novel, but I found it oddly like gripping. I couldn't put it down. It's It's about a child of a single mother who's an absolute prodigy. And it really is about kind of the multilingual, multi-genre, intellectual, spiritual challenge of of raising somebody who is just who you have trained to be, but now struggle with the fact that this person is just enormously brilliant, a lot smarter than you um, as a parent, but also doesn't have your experience and intuitions. And in many respects... I'm so glad I had picked up the book. It might have been like a Tyler Cowen recommendation, but it was like years ago. I'd, I'd bought the book like years and years ago. I'm so glad that I had just had not read it until now because reading it in the era of AI has been such a joy, like such a joy. I just wrote it down, so it'll be my next one. So thank you for that. Also, by the way, I should say they were also on TV. I don't know what channels any of this is on anymore. The Peripheral. If you've got to see the peripheral, which is fantastic, and also um, Andor. Oh, did you watch Andor? I have not. It's really, really good. So yeah, those two also on TV. Get on it, folks. Okay, last question. What's something new and cool and exciting that's happening at the University of Utah? We're starting a great books program. That'll hey. be, that is it. So everybody else is, is undoing their great books programs around the country. We've got a brand new one with some Kafka, with some James Baldwin, um, with some Virginia Woolf. It's really fantastic. Hollis Robbins, Zena Hits, Jen Frey, Saving the World. It's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to talk to you. Hollis, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yay. Anytime. As you can see, reports of the humanities' demise are greatly exaggerated. The humanities are flourishing, and Hollis herself, through her scholarship, gives you a sense of just how much life-changing value and joy can be wrung from the best of the human condition. But I think it's just as important to understand why the humanities are flourishing, or maybe more precisely, where and under what conditions they're flourishing. If we want to scale, we need to understand that a sense of cosmic mystery, dare I say theology, is almost certainly a necessary ingredient if we want the spirit of the humanities to truly suffuse society. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome and head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.